Colossians chapter 1. That's where we'll be for the entirety of our time today, Colossians chapter 1. Make sure if you haven't yet, stop by the underground right after service, meet our graduates, meet their families, wish them well. That would be awesome. And while you're down there, you can grab yourself a donut and and some refreshments. When I was younger, my grandpa and I used to go into Daylight Donuts there in the small town of Heston, Kansas. And I remember I began to notice every time we would go in there, I would see the same group of old retired gentlemen sitting at the same table. And I didn't, I didn't realize until later, this is actually a tradition some of you older folks have called breakfast clubs. I guess you sit around, sip a cup of coffee, tell the same stories, followed by the same jokes, and you sit there and you solve the world's problems over donuts and coffee. It's genius. But here is a picture of one of these old breakfast clubs. This was actually in a news article from 2019. This group decided to take their regular donuts and coffee to a local farmer's market and start giving their great advice to the public. My favorite part's definitely their slogan. It's probably bad advice, but at least it's free. And so they did this as a joke, but one by one, people actually started lining up for the advice these older folks had to give. Women asking things like, I stay with my unfaithful husband. And my personal favorite, a kid asking, why does my cat have to pee on everything? We're in a series here at South Route called Christ Above All. And we are walking verse by verse through the book of Colossians. And the main theme of this book that Paul wants to drive into your head over and over again is that Jesus isn't just enough for you. Jesus is more than enough. But we've stated before that the problem facing the church of Colossae is they had their own version of free advice that was infusing itself into the culture of the town. Andy told us a couple of weeks ago that Colossians, this letter was written by Paul to the church of Colossae. And Colossae was kind of a town that had their own K-15, if that helps us derby folks visualize it. People always coming in and out of Colossae on their way through to somewhere else. And that brought with it a mix of cultures and backgrounds. And what the church was hearing was, it's really good that you have Jesus, which is pretty similar to something that you and I might hear. I get this all the time. People ask me what I do for a living, and I tell them, well, I'm a pastor to middle school and high school students. And they look at me and think, wow, you must be the Apostle Paul. And they instantly think I'm a good person. And people do this, right? People are so shocked when they hear you go to church or you connect with Jesus in some way that they often give you more moral credit than you actually deserve. As a pastor, I'm going to make a dangerous statement, but going to church on a Sunday morning does not make you a good person or a follower of Jesus. The challenge for all of us is not to say that Jesus is a good dude and a good place to start. It's to realize that once we find Jesus, there's nowhere else to go. And the church in Colossae was hearing the same things. It's good that you have Jesus, but you might think about adding adding some ritual, some ceremony, some mysticism, some legalism. Jesus is good, but he's not enough. I mean, the world still says to us today that Jesus is a good start, but he's not enough. You can't just have Jesus. You need security. Jesus plus a 401k, Jesus plus a good job, Jesus plus an athletic scholarship, Jesus plus fill in the blank. Jesus has become an extracurricular activity that's great if you can fit it into your schedule. That's how the real world works. 
And so Paul is writing to these people to tell them, no, it's not Jesus plus anything. Jesus is enough. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. Christ is above all, period. Our text and the message this morning is going to be divided up into a couple different parts. In the first main section that we're going to read here in Colossians, Paul addresses the community specifically, but he's going to pray or he's going to praise God for some things about them and then pray for some things for them. Paul is first going to establish what we as people convinced of the Lordship of Jesus and washed by the blood of Christ already have in him. Remember, uh, Paul is writing to the faithful and holy people in Colossae. We see all those words in verse 2. These aren't non-Christians. These are people just like you and me sitting in a church and for the most part already convinced that Jesus is Lord. And so Paul first addresses and establishes what we have in Jesus. But then in the second part, Paul is going to show us what we could have in Jesus if we press forward. And my fear this morning is that a lot of us will just want to settle for the first part. Churches in America specifically have fallen into this dangerous ideology that says, because I've been saved from my sins, Jesus came just to get me to heaven. Jesus came just to keep me from going to hell. That is a lie. I mean, while that is technically true about the gospel, there is so much more that Jesus came for. Jesus offers us a life in the kingdom. He offers us gospel transformation. We not only find, but we can follow Jesus. And I don't want us to settle for the first part of this message that says, because I've been saved from my sins, because I already have faith in Jesus, I have free license to worry about my scholarships and my job and all these other things. Because when we discover all we can have in Jesus, those things become worthless. So part number one, let's look at what God is doing in us. Colossians 1, look there with me, verse 3 is where we're going to start. Verse 3, Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. If you hear me preach through the New Testament letters for very long, I think to understand Scripture, it's important for us to understand who was writing to whom and why. A preacher named Mark Christian one time pointed this out for me, and all of Paul's letters have become a lot clearer. As Paul writes letters to churches like Colossians or Ephesians, Corinthians, Thessalonians, after he introduces himself, Paul will always say, I thank God for three things he wants to see in a church, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And if he says to them, I thank God for your faith and hope, he's probably going to talk to them about what's missing, their love. Corinthians hits that one hard. Man, you're doing pretty well in these two, but what happened to your love, church? It's all sorts of messed up. Hence, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, you know the rest. Thessalonians, faith and love are really good, but your hope is in the wrong spot. And to some churches, Paul loves the fact that their faith, hope, and love are all present, like Colossians and Ephesians, because God measures the church differently than we do. We evaluate church by how many people are in the room, whether our parking spot was conveniently close to the building, whether we enjoyed it, whether the songs we sang gave us goosebumps, 
Like, how was your day? It didn't stink. Like, obviously we understand that is not how we should be measuring worship of God. And yet, that is how our brains have been conditioned to evaluate our current context. And so Paul writes to the Colossians in verse 4, I see your faith, I see your love, I see your hope. But there's a very particular way in which he says this to them in verse 5. Look at it again. The faith and love that what? Spring from your hope stored up in heaven. You see, Paul wants them to know if our hope is put in anything but Jesus, our faith and our love will begin to suffer if not die. It's not, well, I want you to be more loyal to Jesus and less loyal to these other things. No, Paul says if you're loyal to anything but Jesus, it will cost you everything you have in him. And so Paul writes to them in verses four and five. I love that your faith, hope, and love are all present in the church. And when these people with free advice challenge you to add to or subtract from anything that Jesus has said, they are messing with your hope and it takes your faith and your love with it. Continuing verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. I'll be pretty brief with this section. When I was in college, uh, I was able to participate in a youth ministry at a small church just outside of Carthage, Missouri. Now, this little church didn't have a whole lot, but this little church would drive a school bus to the pretty small town uh, of Sarcoxy every Wednesday to pick up students for youth group. And I come into this church thinking, I am all that in a bag of chips, and I'm going to be the best youth volunteer, and I'm going to teach all of these students about Jesus. But when I showed up, I heard stories of middle school and high school students that shouldn't have to live like that in their entire lives, broken of the broken families, and I was wrecked. There was nothing that I could give them but the love of Jesus. There was nothing this church could give them but the love of Jesus and a hot meal. And I showed up each week to simply love students because that is all I could do and to let Jesus change my heart and theirs. See, Paul is writing to the Colossians as he continues here in verses six through eight. Man, if you ever want to know that Jesus is enough, take your eyes off your own circumstances because the gospel isn't about you and look at the evidence of the world around you. The gospel works, the gospel redeems, the gospel transforms. The gospel is drawing hundreds and thousands of people to know that Jesus is enough. It doesn't need you and I to add to it. It needs our submission to it. And that's when we see the gospel work. So in the first eight verses, Picking out just a couple of things, Paul says to the church, I see what God is doing in you. That when Jesus is enough, when we make him Lord above all, when the gospel becomes selfless instead of about us, we see that the gospel works and it produces in us faith and hope and love. That's what we have in him. But part two, let's see what God can do with us going forward if we let him. See, Paul doesn't just stop with praising the current state of their faith. He's going to pray for a couple things for them as they grow. Remember, Paul has probably not met these people. He's only heard about them from Epaphras. And so Paul is left with praying and encouragement from them for them as they grow with their hope in the gospel. And in the second section of our text today, Paul, for the first time, is going to use three words that he will hearken back to in the rest of the letter. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Why would Paul use these words over and over again? 
Well, I tend to believe it's because this is what the false teachers were probably offering the people outside of Jesus. And so Paul begins his prayer this way, verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Here's his prayer. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge, there's one, of his will through all the wisdom and understanding, there's two and three, that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Paul's prayer is, we continually ask God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. If I can break this down into its two simplest parts for you, Paul prays that we could discern, know, understand the will of God, verse 9, and then live out the will of God, verse 10. To perform God's will goes hand in hand with knowing God's will. My wife all the time has to ask me to do the chores. I don't like them. Uh, now, she's not a mean or demanding person. If you've met my wife, she, you know she's a fairly nice person. And in, if I don't do the chores, instead of getting mad at me, she will get up, and she's so nice, she will do them all herself. And then I feel like a horrible person. But if she ever tells me, Colton, I'm, and this has happened before, Colton, I'm running to the store. Can you take the trash out before I get home? And the trash is still there when she gets home. She obviously gets upset. I have no license to tell her in that moment, well, Macy, I heard your words. I meditated on them. I went to a small group and we studied how to take the trash out. I have an accountability partner that's going to help me remember to take the trash out. I listened to some sermons about taking the trash out. I know so much about taking the trash out now that I can teach other people how to take the trash out. No. If I was told to take the trash out, I need to live in such a way that shows my love for her so much that I do what she has called me to do. Because that is Macy's will for Colton's life in that moment. And because I love her. Now, if you've been attending South Rock for any length of time, you have been taught how to know God's will through prayer and studying and meditating on scripture, through gathering in fellowship and worship of God to serve one another in love. We can grow to know God's will by practicing the disciplines that lead us toward God's will. And we teach that pretty well here. But if I may, I've been involved in a good number of churches in my lifetime to the ripe age of 25. I count back, and I've attended for more than just a couple of weeks, one missionary church, two Pentecostal churches, three charismatic non-denominational churches, a church of Christ. South Rock will be my third independent Christian church. I've attended services both at a black church in the hood and a high-end Greek Orthodox church, not to mention I went to a German Mennonite private school my whole primary and secondary schooling. So even if you have no idea what any of those words mean, know that I have been around the block a little bit when it comes to churches and church people. But what I have come to realize in all of these Christian circles is the same. We all think we know what God's will is. We Christians all think we have the most knowledge and wisdom from God. The theological term might be spiritual pride. And we all seem to read verse 10 as Paul saying, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge so that you can tell everybody else how wrong they are on Facebook for the way they are living, and we can judge people for not knowing as much as we know about the Bible, and we can live in this I'm holier than you mentality, and you need to look exactly like me. But here's what Paul actually prays, that not only will we be able to discern and know God's will, 
but then through the Spirit, we would live like we carry the truth. I don't want it to be me that when I stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, he says to me, Colton, you preached a lot of mediocre sermons, but I never knew you. You led or you attended a good small group, which is great, but depart from me, I never knew you. You know, you know who Melchizedek is. You can recite all the kings of Israel in order from the Old Testament. You know how to interpret the letters of Paul. But Colton, I don't know you. But Jesus, come on now. Are you Colton, you knew the will of God, but you never loved the people of God. You knew the will of God and you didn't do it. Matthew chapter 7 right there. And I never want that to be us. So Paul prays here in verse in, in these verses in Colossians, church, may God fill you with the knowledge of his will, yes, but through the Spirit, may you live a life worthy of it. May you live like you carry the truth. And then Paul prays that we would have strength to finish well. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Whenever I pick up a new hobby, it's pretty dangerous to my bank account. I, uh, I have recently got into running. That's been my latest and greatest. I recently bought myself some running sunglasses, one of those hands-free dog leashes that goes around your waist so my dog can run with me. I bought some new running shoes. I have an app on my phone that tracks how fast I'm going over the miles I've run, and social media knows this, right? And so all I have seen on social media the past few weeks is photos, videos, reels uh, of running. And one of the things that I watched coverage of a few weeks back was the 2023 Boston Marathon. Now, there are a lot of people who can run marathons, and then there are people who run marathons. And this lead group at the Boston Marathon this year ran their first three miles of this marathon in about 14 minutes. That means they ran their first three miles at just over four minutes per mile. To put this in perspective, the average person, me and y'all, can run a mile in just over or under 10 minutes, depending on your age. So these top runners were running over twice as fast as the average person can go for one mile for 26 miles. How in the world? So I've come to the conclusion that life is not going to be easy. Most profound thing I've said all day, probably. <laughs> but it's not. Much like a marathon, life has kicked some of us in the pants recently, and we are tired. What I know is that if we are going to carry the light of Jesus, the darkness is going to try and stifle it any way it can. And there are times that you will not want to keep going. There are times where Jesus doesn't feel like he's enough for you. And so Paul prays in verse 11 that we would know God's will, that we would do God's will, and that we would be strengthened to keep doing God's will even when it's hard, according to God's strength, not our own. Because from what I know to be true about God, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Yes, God is bigger than the boogeyman, and he's what, for those of you who know VeggieTales, watching out for you and me, yes. Simple VeggieTales song, but so profoundly true. And if he's been faithful to me up to this point, why should I believe the future to be any different? The strength we receive from the Lord will sustain, will provide for, will carry you through anything in life. Jesus is enough. But lastly, 
Paul prays that we be counted as qualified to receive our kingdom blessing. Verse 12. In giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you look back at those verses, there's no denying the two realities we have at play. There is a kingdom of light, and there is a kingdom of darkness. Now, the kingdom of darkness or evil doesn't have to be like what we see in the movies, where there's a red guy with a tail and a pitchfork sitting on your shoulder, arguing with an angel in a bathrobe and a tiara on your other shoulder. But there is a very real battle going right on right now in the world between the forces of good and evil. And guess what? If Jesus is the ruler of the kingdom of light and Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, you and I don't get to rule a kingdom, no matter how much we want to fight our own battles and create our own securities. And Paul is calling us in these last few verses of this prayer to lay down our weapons of battle, to lay down our spiritual pride, to lay down how much knowledge and understanding we think we have in the church, and to lay down how much security and comfort we think we have built for ourselves inside or outside of the gospel that adds to what the gospel already did. That's not our battle. And Paul invites us in his prayer to submit to the already finished work of Jesus. Verse 14, God has already rescued us from darkness and brought us into the kingdom of Jesus because of the cross. Jesus fought for love as he was betrayed with a kiss from a friend. Jesus fought to walk as he drug the cross up the hill. Jesus fought to breathe as he hung from that tree for hours. Jesus fought for life when all of sin for all time was weighing down on a perfect savior. And when he died, this man, this so-called king, seemingly let all of humanity down, let his disciples down, let his family down. When they expected him to reign, everyone abandoned his cause. But that fight was not fought in vain because three days later, the battle against sin and death was won once and for all as Jesus walked unscathed out of the tomb. This is not our battle to overcome evil and create a new kingdom of our own comforts and securities. That battle is won. And the battle you and I will face is to daily submit to Jesus as being enough. You see, it's really easy to say, I trust Jesus plus I trust Jesus plus power. Trust Jesus plus my vote for a political affiliation. I trust Jesus plus my intellect. Trust Jesus plus my charisma. Jesus plus my bank account. Jesus plus my need for a significant other. Jesus plus whatever comfort you have that competes with God's will and God's glory. But Mark Christian asks the questions, and so we ask the questions today. Is Jesus enough for you? What more do you need than him? What has ever served you better than he did? What has ever provided you more security than the one who defeated death on the cross, kept every promise, walked out of the tomb, and invites you to do the same? What has ever loved you more than he did? What has ever offered you free and full forgiveness like he did? What has ever loved you so much and accepted you as you were that you want to change because of him? Who? We know the answer. No one. And most of us have tried a thousand different ways to bring that redemption, satisfaction, and value back. And it's not found. Are your money, your 401k, your job, your political preference, your athletic scholarships bad things? No. 
what I can tell you is if you, is you can gain all the things in this world that you think you need, and if you don't have Jesus, your balance sheet still says zero. Jesus is enough. He proved it through the cross. He redeems everything sin made wrong in this world. He's enough. And he can be, and he will be enough for you. One more story, and I'll be done. I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio for a couple of years, and Cincinnati is famous for a couple of things, but none greater than consistently mediocre sports teams and Skyline Chili. And Skyline Chili is one of those restaurants that's just about on every street corner, like Mexican food here in Derby. And Skyline is a sweet cinnamony chili poured over either spaghetti noodles or a coney dog. Both things on the menu. Don't knock it till you try it. It's fantastic. Now, I was a regular. Two to three, occasionally four times a week. I'd go in there, and I didn't even have to sit down and order because they knew my usual. Four conies, habanero cheese, no mustard, no onion, with a water, two packs of crackers on the side. I love Skyline. But not as much as Bill. Bill was an elder in the church I worked at. He was a fiery older gentleman that could make you laugh until you cried and was such a joy to be around. But Bill was at Skyline, no, not two to three times a week. He was often there two times a day. How I long to be so in love with Jesus that he is not only all I need to sustain me, but all that I desire. How I long to be in love with Jesus to the point that I cannot go a day without him. That my knowledge of God would lead me to the depths of intimacy with God. That my pleasures would become his. That all of my desires would fade away in the face of Jesus. And that church is what Paul prayed for Colossae 2,000 years ago and for South Rock Christian Church in Derby, Kansas in 2023. I've asked Brian if he would come back out and sing one of my favorite hymns of all time. Here's how it goes. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Yes, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. 